Hello and welcome to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, UCL's award-winning podcast all about the pandemic. My name is Vivian Parry, I'm a writer, broadcaster and UCL alumna and I'm here to bring you more UCL stories and experiences of coronavirus. In this week's episode, we're returning to the topic of vaccines. At the time of recording, nearly 20 million people across the UK have received at least one dose of a vaccine. And thanks to the tireless efforts of frontline staff, we're still on track to vaccinate everyone over the age of 18 by July. But vaccines have not been universally well received. In Tower Hamlets, for instance, one of the most diverse London boroughs, vaccine uptake is 10% less amongst the Asian population than in the white population, and 25% less in black communities. Given that coronavirus disproportionately affects black communities, this hugely concerning state of affairs risks further widening health inequalities. So today I'm speaking with clinicians and researchers from UCL about vaccine hesitancy in the black community. Let me introduce my guest to you. I'm joined by Mr. Lei Ajayi, a consultant urological surgeon, clinical service lead for urology and clinical lead for endourology stone disease at Royal Free London. Lei is also a member of the European Association of Urology section of Eurotechnology and performs live kidney stone surgery at the annual European Urology Conference. I'm also joined by Dr. Lola Emmanuel Kohler, who is the consultant anaesthetist and lead in obstetric anaesthesia at the Royal Free. Lola leads the multidisciplinary simulation team in maternity services, which uses simulation training as an educational tool to improve safety in clinical practice and has developed and written a protocol for the safe management of obstetric deliveries and surgical procedures using simulation to remove hazards. And by Dr. Taj Fregene, a consultant anaesthetist at the Royal Free. Taj is the author of multiple papers on improving the experience and quality of elective surgery, as well as several works of fiction. As part of his work with the Royal Free, Taj also supervises the weekly journal club for trainees. And finally, last but absolutely not least, I'm joined by Chris Brewgraves. Chris is the National Cancer Imaging Translational Accelerator Programme Manager. She's been working in clinical trials since 1994 and helped to change and improve best clinical practice. And she's currently writing up a PhD in health economics in the Institute of Epidemiology and Healthcare. So first of all, very quick question to each of you. And I'm going to start with Leia. Have you each been vaccinated? Yes, I've been vaccinated. Uh, I had my second vaccine uh, last week, last Friday. And very interesting, the, the first vaccine, when I had the first vaccine, I did lose my sense of uh, taste for a 12-hour period. Uh, thankfully, it was a very short, a brief uh, loss. Otherwise, very effective. No side effects whatsoever. Lola. I had the second dose last week. And aside from having a very sore arm and feeling a little bit tired, I think I've probably weathered it um, relatively easily. Chris, how about you? Yes, I've had my first dose. I'm very needle phobic and I have a very low pain threshold. So I did take painkillers the day after because I had a sore arm, but otherwise nothing to report. Taj. Yes, I have had um, my vaccine. As an anaesthetist who spent a lot of time working in intensive care units these past 12 months, I've seen the devastation that coronavirus can do to people's bodies firsthand. So when there was a safe and effective way of preventing it, I was very happy. So I had my first dose in December, my second dose, like Leia and Lola, last week. I had a bit of a sore arm for about 12 hours, but apart from that, I feel fine. Very good. I could also report I had mine. 
and I've had COVID and I had the uh, AZ vaccine and I did feel really quite fluey the evening after, but otherwise my immune system is on tip-top form. Thank you very much. My T-cells in particular are on overdrive. So great to hear that you've all had your vaccines. Now we've heard on this podcast of the many different factors that have contributed to ethnic minorities disproportionate representation amongst coronavirus affected communities and yet still there's hesitancy within some communities to get vaccinated. Where do you think this hesitancy is coming from and why do so many black people distrust the vaccine and the vaccination rollout? Guy, we'll start with you not to talk about the actual vaccines themselves uh, and how they were developed, but the number of ethnic minorities that were included in trials, because part of the suspicion is that the trials have been done on Europeans mostly and not on people from ethnic minorities or even majorities. Uh, you, you make a very valid point here. As, as clinicians, this whole situation does affect us enormously. So we were all very enthusiastic and very keen to read about the vaccine when the initial trials were published. So with my clinical head on, uh, I looked at the article in the New England Journal of Medicine. I think it was published on New Year's Eve. This is the BioNTech uh, Pfizer vaccine. And I read the paper with interest. I thought very well written, good uh, protocols, etc. And I remember having a conversation with a friend who's a, a, a black friend of mine. And I tell him about, yes, I'm thinking about having the vaccine. And his comment to me was, well, you know, yes, it's good you're going to have the vaccine. But if you look at the trials and how many black people were actually in that trial. And I didn't think about that the first time I read the paper. And then when I did a slightly deeper dive into the ethnicity of that, and the New England Journal does give you a very good breakdown of the ethnicity, uh, 83% white, only 9% were black or, or African-American, 28% Hispanics or Latino. So in that paper, the New England Journal of the Pfizer, there was, a, there was 9% black population. Whereas the AstraZeneca papers were also quite interesting. When you look at the cohorts of countries which were involved in that trial, when you also break that down, the UK trial, only 0.4% were black, 93% were white. In the Brazilian study, 11% uh, were black. So when I looked at it in a bit more detail, I'm afraid I, I, I do I can understand some anxieties here because the population it didn't it wasn't a proportional representation of the population of the people who were uh, in the study. I'm aware that AstraZeneca are trying to amend this by running a trial in Kenya looking predominantly at black people, but it is interesting that a small proportion only were black people in this trial. And we've seen big trials in South Africa because, of course, one of the things about doing trials is that you need to have a high incidence of coronavirus in the country that you're trialling. And a, a lot of African countries have not had, thankfully, a very high incidence, except in South Africa. And there have been trials there. Correct, correct. The New England Journal, the Pfizer trials did enroll four centres in South Africa to do the, the study. You're quite right. Uh, also, the AstraZeneca also enrolled South Africa as well. So you're quite right. You do need a high proportion of the virus in that country to be able to do a proper trial. And that's a difficulty, isn't it? Because on the one hand, I've heard people say disparagingly that trials shouldn't be done in Africa because obviously people in those nations are being used in as guinea pigs. But on the other hand, you need to be doing trials that involve a representative sample. 
How do you get out of that bind? Well, it it does create a slight bias, doesn't it? In order to run a trial, you do like you like rightfully said, you do need proportional representation, uh, and it is slightly difficult. But I think AstraZeneca are looking at this a bit more detail by running a trial trial in Kenya. In a lot of these African countries, the average life expectancy is of a, an individual is in his fi- in their fifties. So you're dealing with a younger population who perhaps won't uh, necessarily succumb to the side effects of the of severe effects of coronavirus. So again, you're dealing with a slightly different biased population in Africa compared to that in the Western world. Let me turn now to Lola because we've heard there from Lay that the myth or the underrepresentation of black people in trials is a important part of vaccine hesitancy. But there is structural racism within the health services too. And Lola, you're based in maternity care where this is an an issue. Is this also feeding into hesitancy? Yes, thank you for asking this question. Actually, if you look at certain outcomes or maternity outcomes for, let's, let's say, black women in particular, the figures are not very good. So every year we publish a report, well, there's a report published called the Embrace Report, which essentially looks into maternal and fetal mortality and investigates all the cases that are reported to this organisation. And they look at lots of variables, socioeconomic, you know, health outcomes, all sorts of things. And what it's shown consistently in the last few years is that there is an increased risk of morbidity and mortality during the pregnant period for black women. And uh, it was as high as five times the risk of of death in pregnancy compared to the white population. That has now reduced. It is. um, And actually, it it is astonishing. It's it's something that seems to be quite prevalent in the developed or Western population. If you look in the US and some states within the US, the figures are even higher than that. It's actually quite appalling, to be honest. However, uh, the, the figures have come down slightly. It's, uh, this year's report has shown that your risk is four times higher. And if you're an Asian woman, your risk is twice as much as if you're a black woman. There are definitely some you know, stark inequalities there. However, the vaccine uptake in the pregnant population as a whole, in this case, I think it doesn't um, necessarily pertain to race. There's a lot of hesitancy for drugs, vaccines delivered to women in pregnancy. And pregnancy itself is the universal factor, I think, for women having, you know, being hesitant in sort of in, in having a vaccine. Currently, the vaccine is discussed or you know, they are vaccinating women or looking to vaccinate women who have particular risk factors that are similar to the high risk factors in the general population. But as a whole, because of the lack of evidence, there is not really in the pregnant population, it's not necessarily advocated for women during their pregnancy. And this is universal for all races. It's just under the umbrella of pregnancy. Yes. And of course, the one message that every pregnant woman has got is don't take any medicines. And yet, with flu vaccine, one of the things that we found out in the last pandemic, remember that one, uh, was that pregnant women, in particular in the last trimester, were particularly at risk from the flu virus. And some of them became extremely uh, unwell. And flu vaccine then was given to pregnant women, and it was an important part of keeping them safe. So... Here we've got two things going on. We've got pregnant women's natural and absolutely understandable concerns about taking anything during pregnancy. 
plus you've got a suspicion of the health services because of demonstrable inequitable uh, treatment. So now let's add another layer. Chris, what other kinds of barriers are preventing black people who actually want the vaccine from getting vaccinated? That's a very, very important question to ask because there's several layers here one needs to think about. I think the most obvious usually are the physical barriers where with most people, pick up and drop off might be um, done by a member of the family. In, in black communities, you'll find that most of us tend to do frontline jobs. So we either drive trains or work for the NHS um, or are in the gig industry. And we don't have the flexibility of working from home. And if we don't work, we don't get paid. So taking an older parent to have a vaccination a long way from home where we have to travel to this hub, take time off work is quite onerous. And I would have thought with populations that are difficult to, to reach, if, for example, a GP surgery was going into a home to vaccinate an older person, they would capitalize on add-on sales and, 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 and vaccinate the entire household because these populations are difficult to reach. So one, one barrier is making the time and to have it done twice. In addition to that, there are some language barriers, but a lot of trusts have, and actually the NHS have provided leaflets in several languages and YouTube, quick, short YouTube videos to explain, you know, sort of the, the questions individuals will ask when it comes to vaccination. So that's tackled. Um, but sometimes I ask myself the question, the fact that I probably speak Yoruba, does that mean I read it as well as I speak it? So I think the leaflets need to, to bear that in mind. So just saying, oh, we've got it in 22 languages might not be enough because we might not be using the right sort of language and it might be easier to use YouTube clips so people listen. But for me, the most important are the issues around mistrust. So like Lola has, has sort of explained, a, a black woman is probably four times more likely to die in childbirth and a black man is four times more likely to be sectioned than a, a white contemporary. We have lots of issues around mistrust. And some people might ask the question, to go in to be vaccinated, you ask for my NHS number. Why do you do that? And by giving you that information, am I revealing myself to certain authorities that I might not want to know where I am? And this could bring up all the issues around Windrush and issues around fear of authority, police and so on. But I think these to me are the layers, you know, the physical, the language and of course of paramount importance is mistrust. And actually there's one more that I've certainly come across which is that there's a lot of talk and in fact I know from doctors who've had vaccines in the early stages that some of them actually have been quite ill with side effects you know they've spent a day in bed after the vaccine and if you're on a zero hours contract the idea that you might have to take time off for which you're not paid is actually a real deterrent to having a vaccine. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. But statistically, I'm not sure how many people will be so ill they wouldn't be able to, to attend work. But that is definitely an issue as well. I think definitely, like for me, you'll, you'll have to take painkillers the next day, but you should still be able to work. But you're right. There will be a, a small number of outliers who would be quite ill and unable to work, and certainly they'll lose income. 
And of, and of course, their tales get disproportionately told. So we, we, we shouldn't forget that the way that these things work is always the personal stories of people that you know are always the most salient and have the, you know, the greatest impact on people. So just having had one person say, I felt so ill I had to take a day off work is enough to spook a lot of people. I want now to go to Taj because on top of all of these layers and multiple layers, there's also a lot of misinformation about the safety of vaccine, which is really scaring people. And Taj, do you think that fake news stories have an appeal in some black communities, particularly if it seems to support a negative experience of healthcare in the UK? In other words, it kind of reinforces initial beliefs. I think absolutely fake news stories do have a negative and deleterious effect on all communities, not just black communities. I think there's lots of evidence out there that says when we are asked to undertake an action, be that vaccination or anything else, the, one of the key things is the messenger, the person who is telling us to do this or not to do something. And you mentioned it just now that actually the personal stories, the people that we have within our own sphere, those hold much more weight than, say, somebody on the telly, especially somebody on the telly who doesn't, who you feel doesn't represent your interests or your values. Just a very quick story from my own personal experience of what my, my mother, so my mother is a care home worker. She, you know, was very fearful of coronavirus itself and getting it, so she was very pro-vaccination. However, some of her colleagues were not. One of them, a black man, um, was also a pastor at a church who was very, very hesitant about vaccines. However, what her workplace did was they put together an information module, e-learning, that they made all the workforce do. And after doing this e-learning, this person had a complete 180. He got it, he understood like the risks of coronavirus and the importance of getting vaccines. And therefore, he's now going around and telling people in his congregation to get vaccinated. So I think actually getting the information out there in a way that's accessible to people and from people that they trust and respect, I think is very important. Taj, one of the barriers I see being a, a, a journalist is that we tend to put out a lot of the correcting information in mainstream media, but it's not the media that actually ethnic minorities choose to use themselves. Uh, yes, that is very true as well. And um, this goes back to what we were saying before about if a message comes from someone that you know, you trust and respect, it's much more powerful than it is reading something on a newspaper or seeing something on television. And therefore, I think one of the key things in trying to encourage black people to uptake the vaccine is getting um, the message coming from those people that are respected in those communities. How to do that is, is you know, it's going to be difficult, but I think it's certainly worthwhile trying. I think actually it's necessary that we do try because if we do not get enough black people vaccinated, we could widen disproportionately these health inequalities that are existing already. So we've talked about those multiple layers of barrier and challenge. I now want to turn to actually something that's even more tricky, which is solutions. So I'm going to come to each of you in turn. Leia, what do you think? We're in a challenging time, aren't we? A lot of this is through education and communication. And we are in a challenging situation where we our interaction is limited during this uh, current surge where everyone is at home. People are heavily influenced with what they read on, on the internet and on various uh, social media platforms. So I think efforts need to be made to engage and, and educate individuals on this. You can give a perfect example where a lot of our black people are, take religion 
very seriously and educating individuals via their church pastor or their preacher is, is, a, is a way to increase mass uptake of this. If the preacher is educated and, and informed about the vaccine, all it takes is a word from the preacher or their pastor on a Sunday service to say, look, by the way, this vaccine, I've had the vaccine, it's very safe. I recommend the congregation to have the vaccine. You'll find increased uptake. So a lot of this is, is to do with education. Yeah, and I'm going to open yes. my church to, in <laughs> yeah, order to have yes. a vaccine centre. Exactly. So that kind of um, dialogue and narrative, I think, will go a long way uh, into increasing the uptake of the vaccine in the black population. Um, and I'm going to give you free sandwiches and food at the end. That always goes down very well. Yeah, that always goes down well. All those kind of things that make people feel that it's a, commu a whole community thing. So, Lola, what about you? What would you do? I think I would agree with what Leia says. It's, it is going into places where you are more likely to find the black community and places of trust. So, you know, the church is definitely one, one of the optimal ways to do that. And like you said, it, it is about, I think, also continuing to give our stories, finding more black leaders out there who will be willing to put their heads above the parapet and say, I've had the vaccine. I've thought about it, possibly even with photos of them having the vaccine, the same thing you see in social media at the moment, and trying to help to influence that way. So you are looking at people, I, I hate to say it, it almost feels very stereotypical to say it, but people, you know, the sports industry, entertainment industry, I mean, they're very visible, obviously, but also I think it's worth trying to get the voices of other people who are in other different professions. You know, people that you might trust, uh, you know, us as doctors, when we were hopefully, we are hopefully going to make a difference. But looking at other professions, looking at MPs, looking at generally black people who you may not necessarily see as very visible, perhaps some lawyers in just in different walks of life. And I think ultimately that's one way that will help to to spread the message and perhaps give some more confidence. Or perhaps the lovely Kevin Fenton. Kevin Fenton, of course, professor at UCL, but also director of uh, the London region for public health. And I saw in a poll of the most influential black people in Britain, he was only one behind Lewis Hamilton and above Marcus Rashford, a UCL professor. There you go. We have, uh, unfortunately, a, a very sort of close family friend of ours passed away recently, and he was somebody who's very, very prominent in, in looking at world health and vaccinations. And I think had he been alive today and, you know, in, in, he was quite, he's quite elderly at the time, but better able to be visible and speak, he would have been someone who would have been an excellent person and advocate of the vaccine. He's worked tirelessly over his life to do things like help eradicate smallpox. He was very prominent in the School of Hygiene and Public Health. He was a professor at Harvard. And also quite significantly, he's worked pretty much you know, in his retirement and as, far, as, as much as he was able to with the Bill Gates Foundation to try to look at ways of treating and essentially eradicating malaria in the world. So it's people like these, I think, that are quite important who would be you know, really useful in the public eye to speak up. Thank you. Chris, what would your solution be? And do you think that this also could mark a turning point in the way that black people's health is considered in the UK. I mean, I was just thinking, for instance, about pulse oximeters, which give not accurate readings, as accurate readings in, in black people. So we're, we become much more aware of these you know, systemic issues. 
You're right, Vivian, and I must admit, despite all the um, negatives that COVID has brought upon us, it's also shown to us that the um, gaping inequalities in, in health affect us disproportionately. And I think it's brought this to the forefront of a lot of policy makers' minds and influential people. If I was asked for a solution, one of the quick, most important, the fastest thing I'd say to everybody is, when you have your vaccination, stick that I had my vaccination on your phone. Everybody always has their phone in their hand. And for me, having that label on my phone, you know, you go to pay or you bring your phone out, it's always a, 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 a point for um, starting a conversation. People go, oh, you've had it and you can talk about it. So I think when we vaccinated, we should all put that label on the backs of our mobile phones. One thing, it starts the conversation. And for us as black people, we then get the um, opportunity to influence. For me as a researcher, I would say that, again, COVID has exposed these health inequalities. And in everything we do now, we should always think when we write our protocols, like Lei alluded to, we make sure that we recruit a representation that reflects our society or, or probably reflects the disease area specifically. So if, if it's a disease that is predominant amongst black people, aim to recruit that level of incidence. Don't go for the low-hanging fruit and just load it up with easy-to-recruit patients who may not necessarily reflect the demographic we need to look at. And I think we all need to listen, particularly because mistrust comes about because black people feel they're not listened to. So they go in, speak to a health professional and feel they're not listened to. I think we need to listen and show that we are listening rather than just make decisions that individuals feel they were not central to because they were not listened to. And yeah, we need to go into churches. We need to go into barbershops. We need to go into hairdressing salons. We need to re-educate. But there's a lot of work to do. And I, for one, together with my colleagues, would be looking at doing some research, trying to understand why black people are hesitant to take the COVID vaccine, but they're hesitant for other things and would like to use this opportunity to, to, to look deeper and come up with some solutions that will be published and will probably assist to make change more structural. And speaking, you know, for research funders, I think research that's funded, you know, clinical trials, I don't think that they should be funded unless they are representative. I mean, that's what we had to do in order to get women into clinical trials. We certainly ought to be doing it for ethnic minorities. Uh, going to come now to, to Taj, and I know you're very keen on barber's shops, aren't you? I'm not mean that you, <laughs> you go to barber's shops a lot, but they play a key role, don't they? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. I'm glad this is a podcast so people can actually see the state of my hair at the moment um, in lockdown. But yes, I think what um, Chris was saying about starting those conversations wherever they pop up, I think is really going to be very key and very important um, in this drive to get more people and more black people vaccinated. And actually, the more conversations we have around this with the correct information, I think this can only be um, a positive thing. You were mentioning about trials and recruitment. Personally, I know one of my friends who is mixed race um, was part of the Imperial COVID trial. And I was speaking to her the other weekend, and she said the only reason that she went into the trial because she saw a direct request a direct call out for people of colour on Twitter. So it's thinking about how do we reach people. It's not that people don't want to be part of this, but actually the mechanisms by which we are reaching people are perhaps not the same mechanisms that people use to gain their information. That's great stuff, Taj. Thank you so much. So 
We've come to the end of our time. I think that this is such an important area for research in the future, as Chris has indicated. And let's try and make sure that that research gets done. You've been listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited by the splendid Keris Bradley. I was joined today, and thank you so much, all of you, by Mr. Leia Jai, Dr. Lola Emmanuel Kola, Dr. Charles Fregene, and Chris Brewgraves. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights, and expertise through events digital content and activities open to everyone. Hope to be with you again soon. Bye for now.